Chapter Eighteen of Olga Romanoff by George Griffith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Craig Franklin. Olga Romanoff, Chapter Eighteen, A Momentous Commission. Twelve hours after they had left the Sultan on the terrace of his palace, the Ethereal and the Vindea dropped through the clouds onto the snow-covered surface of Kerguelen Island, and within an hour the dispatch vessel Vega was speeding away northwestward to Aria with a full account of the results achieved by the first cruise of the Ethereal. The twenty-four hours which would have to elapse before the reply of the Council could be received were employed in repairing the damage done to the Vindea, and in renewing the motive power and ammunition of both vessels. Sundry small but effective improvements in the mechanism and appointments of the Vindea were also made, and last, but by no means least important, the name of the prize was changed. "'You are henceforth her commander, old fellow,' said Alan to Alexis, when the question of the new name came up, "'and therefore it is for you to say what her name shall be.' "'I knew you would say that,' replied Alexis, his grave, thoughtful face lighting up with a quick flush and almost a boyish smile. "'And, of course, I needn't tell you what name I should like above all things to give her. But then, you see, <laughs> I see nothing but a quite unaccountable embarrassment written largely upon those ingenuous features of yours, my blushing Achates,' interrupted Alan, with a laugh that deepened the colour on his friend's cheeks. Well, you see, I, I'm not quite sure whether she would like it, under the circumstances, said Alexis hesitantly. I didn't know that airships had any choice in the question of their names any more than children have, said Alan, gravely stroking his beard and looking at his friend with a laugh in his eyes. <laughs> Don't assume a density that the gods have not given you, laughed Alexis in return. You know very well who the she is to whom I refer. Now, suppose you were going to name and command the Vindea. What would you call her? <laughs> I would do as you want to do, my friend, said Alan, laughing outright now. Although I fear with more chance of getting snubbed for my temerity and trust to winning forgiveness from the lips of her name-mother by good service and hard-hitting. Perfectly reasoned exclaimed Alexis, and so henceforth, until I have expressed orders to call her something else, the forlorn hope, for instance, she shall be the Isma, and on her decks I will win the right to ask, I mean to wear the golden wings again, or else she will never cross the confines of area. You will win more than the golden eagles, I hope and believe, said Alan, now very serious again for you evidently have a better chance of forgiveness than I have, though I don't despair, mind you, for I am determined never to go back to Aria unless I feel that I can fairly ask Alma to forgive what is past, and if she refuses I will hunt Olga Romanov to the ends of the earth till I take her alive, and then I will carry her to Aria, and at Alma's feet I will strike her dead with my own hand, so that she may know the truth. 
Amen, said Alexis, striding forward and taking his hand. And if Elmer says no to you, I will never see Isma's face again till I have helped you to clip the siren's wings and take her to meet her just reward. It is a bargain. Between us we will bring those proud damosels to sweet reasonableness. Now let us go and get a bottle of sparkling Arian and rename the Vindea in proper form. Thus it came to pass that when the Ethereal next took the air, her consort bore the name that was dearest to her commander's heart. The anxiously expected Vega did not return till nearly thirty hours after her departure. The delay proved that the council had considered the tidings that she had brought of great importance, and had therefore taken some time to deliberate over them. This turned out to be the case, and the decision arrived at by the rulers of Area showed that they looked upon the crisis as grave in the last degree. The return dispatch stated that within twenty-four hours after the arrival of the Vega at Kogelan, a fleet of fifty airships would be at the disposal of Allen and Alexis, who were ordered to place themselves at the head of it and proceed with all speed to Alexandria, taking Olof Losensky and the other Russian prisoners with them. Allen was to be the bearer of an ultimatum to the Sultan confirming, in the name of the President and Council of Area, the provisional declaration of war which he had threatened as the result of an alliance with Olga Romanov, and stating that at sunrise on the 16th of May in the following year, hostilities would be commenced against him, and continued to the point of extermination, so far as all men who bore arms were concerned. He was also called upon to order the Russian squadron to leave his capital, should it still be there, within two hours. If he refused, or if Olga declined to remove her ships, they were to be engaged there and then, and, if possible, destroyed at all costs. This latter part of the message was to be conveyed to Olga in a different form, by the hands of Losensky, who was then to be set at liberty with his fellow prisoners. If Olga consented to go within the given time, it would be necessary to allow her to depart unmolested, as the superior speed of her ships would place the bulk of the Aryan fleet at a hopeless disadvantage in a pursuit, and expose it to certain destruction. If she insisted on fighting, then, of course, the hazard of battle must be taken, and the Council relied upon the commanders of its fleet to do their duty as their judgment should point it out to them. No specific terms were to be made with Olga and her adherents, but hostilities were, if possible, to be avoided until the Sultan's year of truce had expired, and the new Aryan fleet was ready to take the air. If no fighting took place, Allen was to proceed with his squadron to London, with a third dispatch to the King of Britain, as head of the Anglo-Saxon Federation, advising him, in the face of the threatening danger, to call together the rulers of Anglo-Saxondom and take immediate measures for mutual defence against the Muslims, in case they should invade Europe when the year of truce was up. For this purpose, 
arms in any quantities that might be needed would be sent out from area and the arians would undertake the task of drilling the newly formed armies and instructing them in the use of the weapons in addition to this the necessary works and power stations for building and equipping at least a thousand of the largest airships were to be established under arian control in england and at the same time dockyards were to be set up for the construction of an equal number of submarine vessels of the narwhal type it was however to be made an absolute condition of this assistance and protection that the armies and aerial and sea navies were to be entirely officered by arians and were to be under the unquestioned control of the president of area this condition was for obvious reasons held by the council to be absolutely essential to success divided commands in the face of a foe which would obey blindly the orders of a single chief who had already shown that he could create armies and fleets of high efficiency would mean inevitable failure and disaster therefore the absolute control of anglo-saxondom must once more be placed in the hands of the supreme council until the danger was passed and peace was restored or area would fight the battle alone and leave the nations of anglo-saxondom to their fate the immediate effect of the orders brought by the Vega was to throw the station of kerguelen into a state of the most intense activity allen at once assumed command by common consent and assisted by alexis admiral forrest and captain ernstein got everything in readiness for the reception of the coming squadron from area all the defences of the station were also thoroughly inspected from the airships floating above the clouds to the submarine mines which guarded the entrances to the harbours and a general plan of the now inevitable campaign was sketched out at a council of war held on the evening of the vega's return it is scarcely necessary to say that the orders from headquarters put both allen and alexis into the highest spirits they had already vindicated their claim to the confidence of the council and their fellow countrymen and the claim had been allowed without stint or hesitation though their year of probation had only just begun they found themselves entrusted with a mission dangerous it is true but also of the most supreme importance and allen in particular felt his pulses thrill with justifiable pride when he found himself charged with the glorious task of doing almost exactly what his great ancestor allen tremaine had done a hundred and thirty years before when he marshalled the millions of anglo-saxondom against the leagued despotisms of europe and overthrew them in the mighty conflict which had given peace on earth for nearly five generations whether he would succeed as the chief of the terror had done depended not upon himself so much as on anglo-saxondom itself if the once conquering race of earth had kept intact its old martial strength and imperial spirit through the long years of peace and prosperity as its kindred in area had done all would be well and the disturbers of the welfare of humanity would pay dearly and bitterly for their tremendous crime but if 
like the romans of old they had allowed the tropical atmosphere of material luxury to relax the fibres of their once sturdy nature and weaken the arms which had once enclosed the world in their embrace then his mission would fail however eloquently he might urge it a desolation infinitely greater than that which overwhelmed rome or byzantium would fall upon anglo-saxondom and its name would be the only monument of its vanished glory but the vega brought something more to allen and alexis than the dispatches and the orders of the council this was a letter from isma to allen filled with the tenderest expressions of delight at the triumphs which he and his companion in arms had already achieved and of brave and hopeful confidence in them despite the terrible dangers that they were going forth to confront the letter concluded with the significant sentence when you come back in triumph as i know you will there will not be one heart in area that will not beat more gladly for your sakes not one hand that will not be stretched out to greet you either in friendship or in love remember this against the day of battle and in the day of peace you shall see how true my words are although the letter made no mention of alma save as one of the intimate friends who sent their loving greetings to the two men who were going to lead the navy area to what might be the first battle of a war that would be the most colossal an unsparing struggle ever waged on earth alan was able to read enough between the lines to give him hope he knew enough of alma's proud and sensitive nature to fully understand why no word had come directly from her to him and also to recognize that the task of winning her back from her estrangement would be no light one indeed of the two tasks which lay before him the conquest of the world and the reconquest of alma's heart he looked with less misgiving upon the former than he did upon the latter still he by no means despaired and what he had said to alexis was justified in his mind by the belief that in isma he had the most eloquent of advocates always at alma's side pleading his cause even better than he could do it himself at any rate for the present as for alexis his lover's eyes and more sanguine temperament found in the letter ample justification for the renaming of the vindea and if he forgot to return the precious sheet of paper to alan after he had read its contents it was because he honestly felt that he had the better right to it and his companion in love and war apparently recognized this for he carefully refrained from asking him for it thus well comforted with new-born hope and impatiently longing to begin the momentous working hand whether it was to be war or diplomacy they awaited the arrival of the promised fleet from area which was expected to alight on the surface of kerguelen about noon on the day after the arrival of the vega a few minutes before twelve o'clock on the nineteenth of may one of the lookout vessels floating five thousand feet above the clouds which overhung desolation land telephoned fleet from area in sight 
and half an hour after the receipt of the anxiously expected news at headquarters the fifty airships were grouped round the power station at the head of christmas harbour renewing the motive power which had been expended on the voyage from area when this operation was completed the fleet was equipped for a voyage of thirty thousand miles if necessary as every vessel was completely furnished with all stores and munitions of war no further preparations had been made and alan was able to give the signal for the flotilla to take the air in a little more than an hour after its arrival at kerguelen it was divided into two divisions of twenty-five ships each one led by the ethereal and the other by the isma and these rose into the air formed into two straight lines each about a quarter of a mile long the two flagships flew one on either flank and slightly ahead and above the main body this formation enabled any signals made from either of them to be instantly seen by every ship in the fleet the distance to be traversed was five thousand eight hundred geographical miles and the voyage was performed at a speed of four hundred miles an hour without incident at daybreak on the twentieth the two divisions were floating in a wide circle six thousand feet above alexandria at a sufficient distance to be practically invisible from the city which nevertheless lay completely at the mercy of the four hundred guns which were trained upon it and which if the terms of the council's ultimatum were not accepted by the sultan and olga would reduce it to a wilderness of ruins within an hour from the signal to fire being given that the russians were still the guests of the sultan was made apparent as soon as the light became strong enough for their squadrons to be seen resting on the earth in the gardens of the palace with one lookout ship stationed about fifteen hundred feet above the roof of the palace when all the ships were in their stations the ethereal and the isma ran up close to each other and alexis boarded the flagship to receive his final instructions from alan who had undertaken the perilous duty of conveying the ultimatum to the sultan and his possible ally olaf losensky was on board the ethereal and alan requested him to be present when alexis received his orders as he shook hands with the vice-admiral alan said i have asked olaf losensky to hear our last arrangements made so that he may recognize as well as we do that this is a matter of life and death for all of us for my own part i am determined that the wishes of the council shall be obeyed or the ethereal and her crew shall be buried with our enemies in the ruins of alexandria we have not been seen yet from the russian lookout ship but they will of course see the ethereal going down i shall descend flying a flag of truce and i feel certain that the sultan will recognize it himself and compel his allies to do so but if not if a single shot is fired or if the russian squadron attempts to rise in the air until my return you are to give the signal to open fire upon the city and the fleet is not to cease firing until it is destroyed you are to forget that you are destroying friends as well as foes for i and all on board the ethereal recognize that the honor of area and the safety of the world
demand the sacrifice, and we are resolved to make it. I not only order this as your superior in command, I ask it as a friend and brother in arms. I know you will gladly die in the same cause if necessary, and so you must not hesitate to kill me and destroy the ethereal, if the fortune of war compels you to do so. Alan's speech, spoken with the perfect steadiness of an unalterable resolve, found a fitting response in the breast of his companion in arms, still holding his friend's hand in what might be a farewell clasp. Alexis simply replied, I see the necessity, and I will obey to the letter. God grant that you may all return safe and sound, but if you don't, you shall have such a tomb as no man ever had before. Goodbye. Goodbye, said Alan in the same steady tone, and then their hands parted, and Alexis returned to his ship. Now, Olof Losensky, said Alan, turning to the Russian, you have heard my instructions, and you know that they will be obeyed. Neither you nor your mistress have any right to expect mercy at my hands, and you shall have none. Obey my orders to the letter, and see that your mistress does the same, or Alexandria will be in ruins before the sun reaches the zenith. I have heard, and I will obey, for the fortune of war is with you, and I must, replied Lysensky, completely overmastered by the heroic devotion displayed by Alan in what bade fair to be a crisis in the fate of the world. A broad white flag of truce was now flown from the aftermast of the ethereal. At the fore flew, as a greeting to the sultan, the star and crescent of Islam, while above both at the main floated the sky-blue banner of Aria, emblazoned with the golden wings united by a mailed hand armed with a dagger. With every man at his station and every gun ready for instant use, the flagship dropped swiftly down towards the Russian vessel floating over the palace. Within a mile of her signal, we bring dispatches to the Sultan, flew from the signal staff at the stern. The captain of the Russian scout ship read the signal and at once telephoned to the palace, with which his ship was connected by an electric thread for instructions. The ethereal then flew a second signal. If you rise, we shall fire. And this he was forced to obey as the Aryan vessel was too far above him for his guns to come into play. He therefore replied with the signal, I have asked for instructions, wait for reply. A few minutes later, Alan, keeping the Russian well under his guns, saw her drop down to the earth and alight on the flat roof of the palace, on which several figures could be seen moving about and scanning the skies with glasses, which were speedily centred on the ethereal. Then a white flag was run up to the top of the flagstaff on one of the minarets of the palace. A similar one was hoisted by the Russian airship and she rose towards the ethereal. Alan, feeling now sure that the flag of truce would be respected for the Sultan's sake, 
allowed the ship to come stern on to the ethereal until the two were within speaking distance as she approached the russian swung her stern guns out laterally and alan did the same with his so that for the time being neither ship could injure the other the stern doors were then opened and the russian captain delivered a message to the effect that the sultan had just risen for morning prayers and would receive the captain of the ethereal in half an hour the Aryan vessel could therefore descend without fear there is no question of fear replied alan shortly i have not come alone use your glasses and you will see that the city is surrounded but we shall respect the truce if you do the russian stepped back with a hurried gesture and seized his glasses it was now quite light enough for him to see at that elevation a wide circle of points of flashing blue light reflected from the hulls of the Aryan fleet he put down his glasses and replied so i see you would not have got here if patrols had been sent out as i advised or else your patrols would not have come back said alan turning on his heel and walking forward half an hour later the white flag on the minaret was dipped three times as an invitation for the ethereal to descend and alan determined to guard against any possible treachery on the part of the russian scout ship signalled to it to precede him and so the two vessels sank down and alighted almost together on the roof of the palace the sultan surrounded by his ministers was awaiting them and as soon as salutes had been exchanged alan handed him the ultimatum of the council as caled read the brief but pregnant message his brows contracted and an angry flush showed through the bronze of his skin he read it twice over stroking his beard slowly and deliberately as he did so then he looked up and said to alan in a tone from which he made no effort to banish the accents of his anger was not my word enough have i not promised that i would make no war for a year by what right do you order me to compel my friend and ally to leave my city within two hours at the word ally alan's face assumed an expression of wrathful sternness and he replied by the right which has always governed the issues of war the power to compel obedience to compel cried the sultan in a still angrier tone what with one airship against twenty not even a prince of air could do that no prince of the air would be mad enough to make the attempt replied alan coldly ask the captain of your scout ship and he will tell you that your city is surrounded and i can tell you that four hundred guns are trained upon it at this moment and that the firing of a shot or the rising of any airship but my own from the ground will be the signal for them all to be discharged i need not tell your majesty what the result of that would be 
Caled recoiled with a cry that was almost one of fear. He knew instinctively that Alan was speaking the literal truth, without the confirmation given by the captain of the scout ship. He saw, too, that Olga had deceived him, or at any rate had been grievously mistaken when she had said that the Aryans would not send a fleet after her squadron. They had done so, and so skilfully had its movements been ordered that the city had been taken by surprise and lay at its mercy. Brave as he was, the strange terrors of the situation sent a thrill of fear through his soul. There he stood, the proudest king on earth on the roof of his palace, beneath the smiling sky of an Egyptian summer morning, and yet that smiling sky was charged with death and destruction, a hundredfold greater than if the thunder clouds were lowering on it, ready to hurl their lightning upon the earth. He could see nothing but the blue heavens and the eastern sunlight shining over the roofs of his capital, and yet he knew that the man standing before him could, with a single signal, reduce the splendid city to heaps of shattered, shapeless ruins, and bury its inhabitants and its guests in one common tomb. Then, what seemed to be a saving thought flashed through his mind, and he said, almost in a tone of banter, But in that case, we should not die alone, unless you have taught those unsparing guns of yours to distinguish between friend and foe. The signal for our destruction would be the signal for yours as well. Even so, replied Alan gravely, that is a contingency which I have foreseen. Olaf Losensky, tell his majesty what my last orders to the fleet were. The Russian stepped forward, and after saluting the sultan, said, I heard the orders given, majesty, and they were to that effect. Friends and foes are to be destroyed alike, and nothing is to be left of Alexandria but its ruins. I am also charged with a message to my mistress, the Tsarina, which tells her that if she does not leave within two hours, her ships will be attacked in the city and that, too, would be disaster. And if my words have still any weight with her, I shall advise compliance with the order of the council. Will your majesty permit me to be conducted to my mistress in order that I may deliver my message in due form? The sultan did not seem to hear the request at all. The idea that Alan and his crew should thus deliberately devote themselves and their beautiful vessels to annihilation in the event of their orders being disobeyed, appalled and unnerved him. He knew nothing save by tradition of the heights of heroism to which men can rise under the stimulus of war, and he looked upon the man who had so calmly pronounced the provisional death sentence of himself and his companions as something more than human, as beings of a higher order, to fight against whom would be impious rashness rather than courage. It was a situation that would have shaken the nerves of the sternest and most experienced soldier of the nineteenth century, 
and so it was no wonder that his spirit unbraced by the discipline of war shrank from facing its terrors he saw too that there was literally no choice save between submission and destruction to save not only the lives of himself and his people but also those of his guests and allies he and they must submit and obey this imperious mandate it is the will of god he said bowing his head slightly towards alan as he spoke they who cannot fight must yield hereafter we may meet upon more equal terms and then today's humiliation shall not be forgotten alan inclined his head in reply and said so be it as your majesty has seemingly decided to involve the world in the horrors of war it is not for me to say any more when the day of battle comes let the fortune of war decide between us meanwhile olof losensky it is time that you took the council's message to your mistress give it to me said the sultan stepping forward with outstretched hands and i will take it to her if she has risen yet there is no need for that said a voice a few yards beyond ellen i am here and i will take it as the sweet low even tones now so hatefully familiar reached alan's ears he turned sharply round with a blaze of ungovernable anger in his eyes and saw olga calm and self-possessed in all the pride of her imperial beauty walking towards the group from an arched doorway that led up from the interior of the palace End of chapter 18